three, chapter one, parts one and two of The Food of the Gods and How It Came to Earth by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Catherine Eastman. Book three, The Harvest of the Food. Chapter the first, The Altered World. One. Change played in its new fashion with the world for twenty years. To most men, the new things came little by little and day by day, remarkably enough, but not so abruptly as to overwhelm. But to one man, at least, the full accumulation of those two decades of the food's work was to be revealed suddenly and amazingly in one day. For our purpose, it is convenient to take him for that one day and to tell something of the things he saw. This man was a convict, a prisoner for life his crime is no concern of ours, whom the law saw fit to pardon after twenty years. One summer morning this poor wretch, who had left the world a young man of three and twenty, found himself thrust out again from the grey simplicity of toil and discipline that had become his life into a dazzling freedom. They had put unaccustomed clothes upon him. His hair had been growing for some weeks, and he had parted it now for some days, and there he stood, in a sort of shabby and clumsy newness of body and mind, blinking with his eyes, and blinking indeed with his soul, outside again, trying to realize one incredible thing, that, after all, he was again for a little while in the world of life, and for all other incredible things, totally unprepared. He was so fortunate as to have a brother who cared enough for their distant common memories to come and meet him and clasp his hand, a brother he had left a little lad, and who was now a bearded prosperous man, whose very eyes were unfamiliar. And together he and this stranger from his kindred came down into the town of Dover, saying little to one another and feeling many things. They sat for a space in a public-house, the one answering the questions of the other about this person and that, reviving queer old points of view, brushing aside endless new aspects and new perspectives, and then it was time to go to the station and take the London train. Their names and the personal things they had to talk of do not matter to our story, but only the changes and all the strangeness that this poor returning soul found in the once familiar world. In Dover itself, he remarked little except the goodness of beer from Pewter. Never before had there been such a draught of beer, and it brought tears of gratitude to his eyes. "'Beer's as good as ever,' said he, believing it infinitely better. It was only as the train rattled them past Folkestone that he could look out beyond his more immediate emotions to see what had happened to the world. He peered out of the window. "'It's sunny.' he said for the twelfth time. I couldn't have had better weather. And then for the first time it dawned upon him that there were novel disproportions in the world. Lord sakes, he cried, sitting up and looking animated for the first time. But them's mortal great thistles growing out there on the bank by that broom. If so they be thistles, or have I been forgetting? But they were thistles and what he took for tall bushes of broom was the new grass. And amidst these things, a company of British soldiers, red-coated as ever, was skirmishing in accordance with the directions of the drill-book that had been partially revised after the Boer War. Then whack into a tunnel, and then into Sandling Junction, which was now embedded and dark, 
its lamps were all alight, in a great thicket of rhododendron that had crept out of some adjacent gardens and grown enormously up the valley. There was a train of trucks on the Sandgate siding, piled high with rhododendron logs, and here it was the returning citizen heard first of boom food. As they sped out into a country again that seemed absolutely unchanged, the two brothers were hard at their explanations. The one was full of eager, dull questions. The other had never thought, had never troubled to see the thing as a single fact, and he was elusive and difficult to follow. "'It's this here boom-food stuff,' he said, touching his bottom rock of knowledge. "'Don't you know? Haven't they told you, any of them? Boom-food! You know, boom-food! What all the election's about? Scientific sort of stuff. Hasn't no one ever told you?' He thought prison had made his brother a fearful duffer not to know that. They made wide shots at each other by way of question and answer. Between these scraps of talk were intervals of window-gazing. At first the man's interest in things was vague and general. His imagination had been busy with what old so-and-so would say, how so-and-so would look, how he would say to all and sundry certain things that would present his putting away in a mitigated light. This boom-food came in at first as it were a thing in an odd paragraph of the newspapers than as a source of intellectual difficulty with his brother. But it came to him presently that boom-food was persistently coming in upon any topic he began. In those days the world was a patchwork of transition, so that this great new fact came to him in a series of shocks of contrast. The process of change had not been uniform. It had spread from one center of distribution here and another center there. The country was in patches, great areas where the food was still to come, and areas where it was already in the soil and in the air, sporadic and contagious. It was a bold new motif, creeping in among ancient and venerable airs. The contrast was very vivid indeed along the line from Dover to London at that time. For a space they traversed just such a countryside as he had known since his childhood, the small oblongs of field, hedge-lined, of a size for pygmy horses to plough, the little roads three cart-widths wide, the elms and oaks and poplars dotting these fields about, little thickets of willow beside the streams, ricks of hay no higher than a giant's knees, dolls' cottages with diamond panes, brick fields, and straggling village streets, the larger houses of the petty great, flower-grown railway banks, garden-set stations, and all the little things of the vanished nineteenth century still holding out against immensity. Here and there would be a patch of wind-sown, wind-tattered giant thistle defying the axe. Here and there a ten-foot puffball, or the ashen stems of some burnt-out patch of monster grass. But that was all there was to hint at the coming of the food. For a couple of score of miles there was nothing else to foreshadow in any way the strange bigness of the wheat and of the weeds that were hidden from him not a dozen miles from his route, just over the hills in the cheesing Eyebright Valley. And then, presently, the traces of the food would begin. The first striking thing was the great new viaduct at Tonbridge, where the swamp of the choked Medway, due to a giant variety of chara, began in those days. Then again the little country. And then, as the petty multitudinous immensity of London spread out under its haze, the traces of man's fight to keep out greatness 
became abundant and incessant. In that southeastern region of London at that time, and all about where Kosser and his children lived, the food had become mysteriously insurgent at a hundred points. The little life went on amidst daily portents that only the deliberation of their increase, the slow parallel growth of usage to their presence, had robbed of their warning. But this returning citizen peered out to see for the first time the facts of the food, strange and predominant, scarred and blackened areas, big unsightly defenses and preparations, barracks and arsenals that this subtle persistent influence had forced into the life of men. Here on an ampler scale, the experience of the first experimental farm had been repeated time and again. It had been in the inferior and accidental things of life, underfoot and in waste places, irregularly and irrelevantly, that the coming of a new force and new issues had first declared itself. There were great evil-smelling yards and enclosures where some invincible jungle of weed furnished fuel for gigantic machinery. Little cockneys came to stare at its clangorous oiliness and tip the men a sixpence. There were roads and tracks for big motors and vehicles, roads made of the interwoven fibers of hypertrophied hemp. There were towers containing steam sirens that could yell at once and warn the world against any new insurgence of vermin, or, what was queerer, venerable church towers conspicuously fitted with a mechanical scream. There were little red-painted refuge huts and garrison shelters, each with its three-hundred-yard rifle range, where the riflemen practiced daily with soft-nosed ammunition at targets in the shape of monstrous rats. Six times since the day of the Skinners there had been outbreaks of giant rats, each time from the southwest London sewers, and now they were as much an accepted fact there as tigers in the Delta by Calcutta. The man's brother had bought a paper in a heedless sort of way at Sandling, and at last this chanced to catch the eye of the released man. He opened the unfamiliar sheets. They seemed to him to be smaller, more numerous, and different in type from the papers of the times before, and he found himself confronted with innumerable pictures about things so strange as to be uninteresting, and with tall columns of printed matter whose headings, for the most part, were as unmeaning as though they had been written in a foreign tongue. Great speech by Mr. Catterham. The Boomfood Laws. Who's this here Catterham? he asked, in an attempt to make conversation. He's all right, said his brother. Ah, sort of politician, eh? Going to turn out the government. Jolly well time he did. Ah, he reflected. I suppose all the lot I used to know, Chamberlain, Roseberry, all that lot. What? His brother had grasped his wrist and pointed out the window. That's the Cossers. The eyes of the released prisoner followed the finger's direction and saw, My God! he cried, for the first time really overcome with amazement. The paper dropped into final forgottenness between his feet. Through the trees he could see very distinctly, standing in an easy attitude, the legs wide apart, and the hand grasping a ball as if about to throw it, a gigantic human figure a good forty feet high. The figure glittered in the sunlight, clad in a suit of woven white metal, and belted with a broad belt of steel. For a moment it focused all attention, 
and then the eye was wrested to another more distant giant who stood prepared to catch, and it became apparent that the whole area of that great bay in the hills just north of Sevenoaks had been scarred to gigantic ends. A hugely banked entrenchment overhung the chalk pit, in which stood the house, a monstrous squat Egyptian shape that Cosser had built for his sons when the giant nursery had served its turn, and behind was a great dark shed that might have covered a cathedral, in which a spluttering incandescence came and went, and from out of which came a titanic hammering to beat upon the ear. Then the attention leapt back to the giant as the great ball of iron-bound timber soared up out of his hand. The two men stood up and stared. The ball seemed as big as a cask. Caught! cried the man from prison, as a tree blotted out the thrower. The train looked on these things only for the fraction of a minute, and then passed behind trees into the Chiselhurst tunnel. My God! said the man from prison again, as the darkness closed about them. Why, that chap was as high as a house! That's them young cossars, said his brother, jerking his head elusively. What all this trouble's about? They emerged again to discover more siren-surmounted towers, more red huts, and then the clustering villas of the outer suburbs. The art of bill-sticking had lost nothing in the interval, and from countless tall hoardings, from house-ends, from palings, and a hundred such points of vantage, came the polychromatic appeals of the great boom-food election. Catterham, boom-food, and Jack the Giant-Killer, again and again and again, and monstrous caricatures and distortions, a hundred varieties of misrepresentations of those great and shining figures they had passed so nearly only a few minutes before. 2. It had been the purpose of the younger brother to do a very magnificent thing, to celebrate this return to life by a dinner at some restaurant of indisputable quality, a dinner that should be followed by all that glittering succession of impressions the music halls of those days were so capable of giving. It was a worthy plan to wipe off the more superficial stains of the prison house by this display of free indulgence, but so far as the second item went, the plan was changed. The dinner stood, but there was a desire already more powerful than the appetite for shows, already more efficient in turning the man's mind away from his grim prepossession with his past than any theater could be, and that was an enormous curiosity and perplexity about this boom-food and these boom-children, this new portentous giantry that seemed to dominate the world. I haven't the hang of them, he said. They disturb me. His brother had that fineness of mind that can even set aside a contemplated hospitality. It's your evening, dear old boy, he said. We'll try to get into the mass meeting at the People's Palace. And at last the man from prison had the luck to find himself wedged into a packed multitude and staring from afar at a little brightly lit platform under an organ and a gallery. The organist had been playing something that had set Boots tramping as the people swarmed in, but that was over now. Hardly had the man from prison settled into place and done his quarrel with an importunate stranger who elbowed, before Catterham came. He walked out of a shadow towards the middle of the platform, the most insignificant little pygmy away there in the distance, a little black figure with a pink dab for a face, 
In profile, one saw his quite distinctive aquiline nose, a little figure that trailed after it most inexplicably. A cheer! A cheer it was that began away there, and grew and spread. A little spluttering of voices about the platform at first, that suddenly leapt up into a flame of sound and swept athwart the whole mass of humanity within the building and without. How they cheered! Hooray! Hooray! No one in all those myriads cheered like the man from prison. The tears poured down his face, and he only stopped cheering at last because the thing had choked him. You must have been in prison as long as he before you can understand, or even begin to understand, what it means to a man to let his lungs go in a crowd. But for all that, he did not even pretend to himself that he knew what all this emotion was about. Hooray! Oh, God! Hooray! And then a sort of silence. Catterham had subsided to a conspicuous patience, and subordinate and inaudible persons were saying and doing formal and insignificant things. It was like hearing voices through the noise of leaves in spring. What did it matter? People in the audience talked to one another. The thing went on. Would that gray-headed duffer never have done? Interrupting? Of course they were interrupting. But shall we hear Catterham any better? Meanwhile, at any rate, there was Catterham to stare at, and one could stand and study the distant prospect of the great man's features. He was easy to draw, was this man, and already the world had him to study at leisure, on lamp chimneys and children's plates, on anti-boom-food medals and anti-boom-food flags, on the selvages of Catterham silks and cottons, and in the linings of good old English Catterham hats. He pervades all the caricature of that time. One sees him as a sailor, standing to an old-fashioned gun, a port-fire labeled New Boom-Food Laws in his hand, while in the sea wallows that huge, ugly, threatening monster, Boom-Food. Or he is Capape in armor, St. George's cross on shield and helm, and a cowardly titanic Caliban, sitting amidst desecrations at the mouth of a horrid cave, declines his gauntlet of the New Boom-Food Regulations. Or he comes flying down as Perseus, and rescues a chained and beautiful Andromeda, labeled distinctly about her belt as Civilization, from a wallowing waste of sea-monster bearing upon its various necks and claws, irreligion, trampling egotism, mechanism, monstrosity, and the like. But it was as Jack the Giant Killer that the popular imagination considered Catterham most correctly cast, and it was in the vein of a Jack the Giant Killer poster that the man from prison enlarged that distant miniature. The wah-wah-wah-wah-wah came abruptly to an end. He's done. He's sitting down. Yes. Now. Yes! It's Catterham! 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 And then came the cheers. It takes a multitude to make such a stillness as followed that disorder of cheering. A man alone in a wilderness, it's stillness of a sort, no doubt, but he hears himself breathe, he hears himself move, he hears all sorts of things. Here the voice of Catterham was the one single thing heard, 
a thing very bright and clear, like a little light burning in a black velvet recess. Here, indeed, one heard him as though he spoke at one's elbow. It was stupendously effective to the man from prison, that gesticulating little figure in a halo of light, in a halo of rich and swaying sounds. Behind it, partially effaced as it were, sat its supporters on the platform, and in the foreground was a wide perspective of innumerable backs and profiles, a vast multitudinous attention. That little figure seemed to have absorbed the substance from them all. Catterham spoke of our ancient institutions. "'Ear, ear!' roared the crowd. "'Ear, ear!' said the man from prison. He spoke of our ancient spirit of order and justice. "'Ear, ear, ear!' roared the crowd. "'Ear, ear!' cried the man from prison, deeply moved. He spoke of the wisdom of our forefathers, of the slow growth of venerable institutions, of moral and social traditions that fitted our English national characteristics as the skin fits the hand. "'Ear, ear!' groaned the man from prison, with tears of excitement on his cheeks. And now all these things were to go into the melting pot. Yes, into the melting pot! Because three men in London, twenty years ago, had seen fit to mix something indescribable in a bottle, all the order and sanctity of things. Cries of, No! No! Well, if it was not to be so, they must exert themselves. They must say good-bye to hesitation. Here there came a gust of cheering. They must say good-bye to hesitation and half-measures. We have heard, gentlemen, cried Catterham, of nettles that become giant nettles. At first they are no more than other nettles, little plants that a firm hand may grasp and wrench away. But if you leave them, if you leave them, they grow with such a power of poisonous expansion that at last you must needs have axe and rope, you must needs have danger to life and limb, you must needs have toil and distress. Men may be killed in their felling, men may be killed in their felling. There came a stir and interruption, and then the man from prison heard Catterham's voice once again, ringing clear and strong. Learn about boom-food from boom-food itself, and... He paused. Grasp your nettle before it is too late. He stopped and stood wiping his lips. A crystal, cried someone. A crystal! And then came that same strange swift growth to thunderous tumult, until the whole world seemed cheering. The man from prison came out of the hall at last, marvelously stirred, and with that in his face that marks those who have seen a vision. He knew, everyone knew, his ideas were no longer vague. He had come back to a world in crisis, to the immediate decision of a stupendous issue. He must play his part in the great conflict like a man, like a free, responsible man. The antagonism presented itself as a picture. On the one hand, those easy, gigantic, mail-clad figures of the morning. One saw them now in a different light. On the other, this little black-clad gesticulating creature under the limelight, 
that pygmy thing with its ordered flow of melodious persuasion, its little marvelously penetrating voice, John Catterham, Jack the Giant Killer. They must all unite to grasp the nettle before it was too late. End of Book 3, Chapter 1, Parts 1 and 2